Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Unsafe Space. My name is Carter Laren. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. You can also go to unsafespace.com to support the show, sign up for our email list so we can let you know when we get banned from various platforms where we end up going. Um, and that's also the best way to find all of our content. So um, if you like our stuff, you know, please press that like button. Today's video is is really going to be an overview of what wokeism or woke culture uh, really is, or at least how I think of wokeism or woke culture. And I know many of you are very familiar with it already. Maybe you already know all this, uh, but some of you don't. Uh, and I was reminded of that last week when we were at Porkfest. Porkfest is a libertarian festival in New Hampshire. And at Porkfest, I gave a talk and about half of that talk was about how I thought Silicon Valley had succumbed to some of the woke ideology, woke religion. And in in talking about that, I also had to introduce what I meant by wokeism and and woke the woke religion, the woke cancer. And I was reminded that even though it's something that we talk about a lot on this channel and, you know, we we interview people like James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose who devote their lives to studying this stuff, I realize that a lot of people are still encountering this kind of thing for the first time often. And they're still a little bit stunned by it. And maybe you're one of those people that's still a little bit stunned, maybe a little bit confused about this religion uh, that seems to have possessed your friends or your family or uh, colleagues or other people in your community. And if you're if you fall into that category, hopefully this will help you think about or give you a framework to think about what what that is. So first, I'm going to try to briefly shed some light on what that woke religion and it is a religion, what it actually is, um, what does it stand for? What are the kind of unifying beliefs of the system? And after that, I'm going to attempt to at least partially explain how Silicon Valley, um, you know, Silicon Valley is this, it's undeniably productive, right? You don't have to like it. I know a lot of people hate Silicon Valley, but it's undeniably productive. Um, it's, in, it's a region of the country with, uh, you know, filled with high IQ entrepreneurs, right? So it's kind of weird. How did it find itself devoid of any kind of functioning immune system from this woke cancer? So uh, so it ends up infecting all of Silicon Valley and with this, this ideology that's a religion that's really anti-scientific, uh, anti-intellectual, and fundamentally anti-human. And so I'm going to try and explain at least partially from my perspective why this cancer could kind of metastasize in Silicon Valley. All right. So the first thing I want to start with is let's, I'd like to classify this. And I really do strongly believe this is a religion. It might not be a good religion. It's a religion though. You could say it's a cult because cults are kind of a subcategory of religion. Um, now, some people call this an ideology. Some people call the wokeism an ideology. And Jordan Peterson often refers to um, a quote that uh, from Carl Jung that, that goes like this. 
Uh, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. Right, that's one of the quotes he uses a lot. And similarly, there's a historian and social critic whose name is, uh, was Morris Berman, and he kind of improved on that young quote. I think it's an improvement uh, by, by differentiating between ideology and ideas. He made those two separate things, and his version of that quote is, an idea is something you have, an ideology is something that has you. Now, I know both of these have, you know, both of these aphorisms are aesthetically pleasing in some way, right? They resonate with me too. They're, they're kind of these neat little aesthetically pleasing things. Um, but we're not going for poetry or aesthetically pleasing stuff. We're going for precision here when we try and talk about um, anything philosophical. We need precision. And those statements are not always true. And you know that. I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You know those statements aren't always true, right? Um, the, the Carl Jung quote implies that people don't have agency and are kind of these passive vessels uh, through which ideas manifest themselves. Um, you know, it's almost, that quote almost makes it sound like ideas have agency, but people don't. And the reason it resonates with us and it's aesthetically pleasing and kind of viscerally attractive is because it certainly feels like that sometimes when someone's gripped with uh, an idea that's, kind of rabidly and irrationally held, it certainly seems like uh, they're possessed. So that's why that's attractive. Um, but of course, that's not always the case. We know that, right? People can uh, act with agency. They can consciously choose the ideas that they hold, thankfully. Um, and they can remain open to questioning those ideas and um, possibly altering or replacing them based on new evidence or a new understanding or a good argument that they hear. So that is capable. So clearly, clearly it's not always true that ideas have people. Um, and the Berman formulation of this, um, the second one there, uh, seems to kind of correct this by differentiating between ideas and ideology. Um, and that might seem better. Uh, until you realize what ideology is. And ideology is kind of used as a term now. It's kind of derogatorily. But really, ideology definitionally is just a system of ideas, right? Um, and there's there's nothing wrong with the system ideas in, of ideas. In fact, your ideas of the world, your viewpoint around the world, should actually be an integrated system. Your ideas should relate to one another. They should be internally consistent. Uh, you should have a unified view of the world, um, because reality is unified, right? Reality is one thing. There aren't multiple realities. I guess if there were multiple realities, you could have different models for those realities in your head. Uh, I don't even know what that would look like, but you could have different philosophical systems and hold them separately. But uh, there's nothing wrong with, in fact, it's necessary that if you're consistent and thorough to have an, a unified system, and that's an ideology. There's nothing wrong with an ideology. So um, characterizing wokeism as an ideology and then vilifying ideologies in general is really not the way to go here. That's, that's not what you were throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It may be an ideology, but it's a bad ideology, and it's something more, than, more specific, and it's not just an ideology. It's a particular kind of ideology. And the kind of ideology it is is a religion. It is a religion. And... You know it's a religion. You can tell it's a religion because, well, have you ever tried to argue with someone 
of a different religion and argue them out of their beliefs. Like if you're a Christian argued with a fundamentalist Muslim or if you're Buddhist, Buddhist argue with a Christian or, um, you know, anyone arguing with a Scientologist or whatever it is. Have you ever tried to argue someone out of their beliefs? If you have, you'll, you'll and I, I spent a while as an evangelical atheist trying this stupidly. Um, it doesn't work. It's virtually impossible. It almost never happens, right? The reason for that is because religion is based on faith and belief. It's not something that you argue someone into. Um, you don't conclude to have your religion in general. It's not something that you you kind of reluctantly conclude. It's usually it's something you decide to believe, or maybe you grew up believing it, whatever. But it's not it's not a conclusion, right? And I know I know there are some. Uh, especially Christian apologists who will argue that it is a conclusion, absolutely. But, you know, if they grew up in, uh, you know, Baghdad, they would not be saying that, right? Um, they wouldn't, they probably wouldn't be Christian. So, and, and, and I think many honest Christians will, when, when, if you argue with them, will say, well, yes, it's a question of belief. Like, that's what it is. These are my beliefs. And that's fine. Um, I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to argue with them, but... There's a difference between religion and just an ideology. A religion has no null hypothesis. Um, and the the religious belief system is not something that is constantly... You don't constantly question your assumptions when you have a religion. Uh, you don't... Religions aren't generally adaptive to new arguments or new information. Like someone doesn't step in and say, I'm going to fun- change a fundamental belief about your religion because I argued for it. Um, unless maybe they're arguing from the religious text and there's some vagaries in the text or whatever. But um, it's a, it's kind of a non-negotiable belief system in general. And so um, this is true for believers of kind of the wokeism just as much as it's true for fundamentalist Muslims or Scientologists or whatever. It's, it's similarly a belief system that is not... Uh, not welcoming to to rational challenge or questioning, right? It's it's a belief system that's held. It's held firmly, and arguing against it doesn't really have an effect. As anyone who's tried to argue against wokies on Twitter will notice. So okay, let's tease out now what this kind of radical new leftist religion actually is. Most of us kind of feel about woke the same way that Supreme Court Justice uh, Potter Stewart famously felt about obscenity. We can't actually define it, but we know it when we see it. At least that's how I think a lot of people, you know, see woke. They see a man bun and some virtue signaling, and they're like, that guy's woke. It's very clear. Uh, But of course, you know, that's a bit of a cop-out for a Supreme Court justice, um, and maybe he can get away with it, um, but we don't wear our bathrobes to work, so we need to have higher standards than the crappy Supreme Court justices do. We need something better than I know it when I see it. That's that's a crappy argument. So um, so we need to try and, try and peel this back and take a look at it. And the problem here when we start to do that is if we start to use philosophic language or just rationally kind of peel back this wokeism and this woke religion and look at it, um, and we start examining the philosophical roots, we quickly run into some apparent contra- contradictions here. And uh, this is one of the debates, you know, there's one major contradiction here or kind of 
um, maybe you wouldn't even call it a contradiction, but some um, uncertainty here about whether this is kind of a postmodernist thing, essentially, or a critical theory thing, essentially. And this is, you know, you'll hear James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose uh, have semi-different takes on this in debates. Um, Rechtenwald has a different, Michael Rech, Dr. Michael Rechtenwald has a different take on this. You'll have, you know, people approaching this from different angles, arguing for various levels of postmodernism and or critical theory as, as the defining characteristics of woke culture. So um, let's delve into those just for a moment. On the one hand, this, the, the philosophic culprit here for the woke religion seems to be postmodernism. Uh, if you examine the radical trans activism, uh, that the trans activist faction of the woke cult, um, you'll find uh, kind of blatant deconstructionism uh, and you know anti-scientific assertions regarding sex and gender. You'll see a, a social constructivist theory of gender uh, and identity in general, actually not just gender. Um, and you'll see it kind of all pasted together with this ever-expansive vocabulary that's designed to decrease precision and clarity. And every every time there's a new term, that term doesn't actually clarify things. It usually obscures things. It makes it worse. Um, and then that term is kind of designed, uh, you know, it's so that when it gets replaced, it gets replaced by five new, more obscure terms uh, the moment anyone kind of gets close to figuring out what the hell that term means. And you see this all the time. This is why they're they're hard to nail down. You 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 mention that it's uh, social justice or SJW, and you start talking about that, and suddenly that word's not bad anymore, and they've got to splinter it into a whole bunch of things. Or you mention critical race theory, and suddenly it's not critical race theory anymore. It's a whole bunch of things. So, but if you if you look at that kind of radical trans activist faction of this ideology or this religion, uh, you'll see this progression. Right? We we went from Two genders, okay. This is how you can see the postmodernism leaking in. So we go from two genders, and then there's like, well, there's three genders because some people maybe are intersex. Maybe that's the the justification. And you know, some reasonable people might say, well, okay, I guess. I mean, there's a small, small percentage of intersex. And I, I don't know. You want to say, you want to have an unknown gender? Okay, fine. Or you know, or maybe that category is for David Bowie, and I, I don't know, whatever. But you kind of, people kind of, the door opens a little bit. And the next thing you know, you got 64 genders. Last time, uh, actually, last time I looked, it was it was more than that. But I remember an article about 64 genders, 64 genders now, right? Now, actually, gender is considered a spectrum. And what they mean by that is it's actually infinite. They switched from the digital world, right, where um, it's discrete. There's a discrete number of genders, two, three, four, five, seven, 64, whatever the number is, to this continuum, which a continuum basically implies it's infinitely divisible. So there's basically an infinite number of genders um, because it's now a spectrum. And this kind of thinking is, you know, why people look at it and say, this is postmodernism, right? It's a rejection of uh, universal objective metaphysics. Uh, it, it does kind of smell like the right Jim Shorts of, of Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, right? Uh, Foucault, one of his you know famous quotes is, "Knowledge is not for knowing; knowledge is for cutting." <laughs> right? Um, and Derrida, of course, is the father of deconstructionism. So you look at that radical trans faction of the woke cult and say, "Well, clearly, this has got postmodernism, right?" 
Um, and that and that their their deconstruction of gender is probably one of the clearest examples of the postmodern influence on woke religion. But if you look at how the Church of Woke treats race, it starts to look like postmodernism can't be the only explanation here. Now, in postmodernism, you can find um, a rejection of kind of this universal objective metaphysics. You can find a rejection of rational epistemology. And, you know, those two things are kind of why when normal people look at some of the assertions made by the woke church members, they kind of sound ridiculous, right? They sound like shockingly ignorant, kind of contradictory to basic common sense, common in in quotes. Um, And the reason for that is because the the fundamental philosophy, and I'm going to treat this, I'm going to treat postmodernism and and critical theory kind of seriously here, but I do want to emphasize any philosophy that rejects objective metaphysics or rejects reason uh, epistemologically can kind of be thrown out as garbage. But we're going to take them on face value and and build from them here. So um, in the woke religion, with regard to race, you'll see things, you'll see assertions that math, for example, is simply the cultural construct of an oppressive white patriarchy, right? Or that objective truth is nothing more uh, than a tool of oppression, um, you'll see things like lived experience uh, being elevated to a, an epistemological status uh, on par with or maybe even uh, above actual facts, evidence, and reason, right? So kind of kind of weird, weird nonsense. And so y- y- often people look at it and they see this kind of tangled web of assertions, nonsensical claims, kind of self-righteous temper tantrums, uh, flat-out denials of reality— and in that sense, it does kind of have postmodernism written all over it. Postmodernism is kind of intentionally absurd sometimes. Um, wasn't really intended to do too much actual describing of the real world, kind of more of a thought exercise. Many many of the postmodernists uh, viewed it that way. So, um, so that's where you see the kind of the postmodernism. But remember here, as you're looking at how woke culture, the woke religion treats race, postmodernism is essentially, uh, or or basically anti-essentialist. So essentialism is this idea that things inherently have these characteristics that uh, define them and make them what they are, right? And to a postmodernist, kind of nothing is anything, really. Everything is socially constructed. It's kind of anti-essentialism. Postmodernist is kind of an anti-essentialism philosophy, it doesn't think that there's things that have inherent characteristics that define them. Um, but if you look at the way that the woke religion treats race, it looks kind of essentialist a little bit, which isn't really postmodern, right? Because you see things here on the slide even where, you know, whites are one way, uh, blacks are another, or whiteness, right, is one thing. And there's some kind of, seems to be pretty clear category, some kind of essentialism in here, like... You know, you're not, you can't just declare a different race like you can declare yourself being a different gender. So there seems to be something different here. Now, it would appear that the the woke religion's kind of maniacal fixation on, on racial collectivism, which, by the way, they've sinisterly named anti-racism, it, it seems like it's based on this kind of 
racial essentialism in some way. And you do hear people make that argument. Um, and they'll say, well, that, so it's not compatible with postmodernism because uh, it's postmodernism. Anti-essentialism, this is essentialism. Um, but they, can, they do square that circle. Again, given bad metaphysics and epistemology, right? They do kind of square that circle a little bit. Uh, and how they do that is they borrow from critical theory. Now, critical theory arose from the Frankfurt School in the 1920s. It was um, founded explicitly on the ideas of Marx and Freud. Um, and, you know, for all their faults, and there's there's a lot of faults for the, the critical theorists, like uh, Horkheimer or Marcuse, if you read Marcuse, they, they, he did actually attempt to operate within an objective reality. He wasn't a total postmodernist there, right? He was, obviously, he was a critical theorist, he, different school of thought. He did believe in an objective reality. Um, so they're not quite, the critical theorists are not quite as fast and loose as the postmodernists are with concepts. And uh, critical theory, though, is, as I said, it's explicitly Marxist, and it's actually explicitly activist. So unlike prior philosophies, the critical theorists decided that instead of trying to explain how the world worked, they really wanted to focus on kind of tearing down the mainstream meta narratives, like tearing down society as we know it, in order to move us towards Marxism. It's a, it's an explicitly activist, a Marxist activist philosophy, um, and I'm you know I'm, this is my, not my characterization of it. This is the characterization of the founders of 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 critical theory. So, um, so that's kind of what critical theory it is is. But critical theory is not essentialist. Um, Critical theory does argue, so it's not an essentialist, it's, it's not, it, it is anti-essentialist, but it argues that even though categories like race are socially constructed, critical theory loves the social construction of, of concepts, but it does say they're also meaningful, right? So it, whereas the postmodernist might say it's socially constructed and everything's meaningless and there are infinite genders and genders, there's no boundaries there, right? The critical theorists say, well, it's socially constructed, but those constructions have meaning. They still have they still have meaning there. Um, those boundaries kind of still exist and they're still important. And even though both postmodernism and critical theory are anti-essentialist, um, those two views are kind of are incompatible because the postmodernists, their version of anti-essentialism is kind of no boundaries and the critical theorist version is, well, it's not essentialism, but there are boundaries and they do matter. And one of the places that you see a reconciliation between critical theory and postmodernism is in uh, a reconciliation by the woke, the cult of woke, is is in the works of Kimberly Crenshaw. Now, um, she's kind of the mother of intersectionality, that word uh, comes from her. Uh, she's also kind of the mother of critical race theory in some ways. She was a Stanford lawyer. Um, She's probably why Joy Ann Reed claims that critical theory is a, is a legal, a critical race theory is a legal theory, um, because Kimberly Crenshaw was a lawyer, but it's not a legal theory at all. Um, yes, she did develop it, but critical theory was not uh, legal. That was a philosophy. Applying it to race is something that Kimberly Crenshaw and others did, uh, other non-lawyers did, and obviously it's grown well beyond any uh, law publications at this point. But... She had two seminal works. One was called, uh, what is it? Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex. 
Um, this was, oh, and there's a subtitle. Uh, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics. Uh, this was in 1989. This is where she kind of introduces this concept of, of intersectionality. And her other kind of seminal work is a couple years later, a few years later in 1991, called Mapping the Margins, Intersectionality, Identity Politics, and Violence Against Women of Color. And you can see in her in her first work there, Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, you can see that she's kind of embracing a little bit of the crazy postmodernist epistemology. Again, epistemology is the theory of knowledge, right? Um, and she even references Gloria Hull. Let me read you the excerpt that she references because it will really show you kind of the philosophic craziness of some of this. Um, this is from a book called but Some of Us Are Brave by uh, Gloria T. Hull uh, and Patricia Bell Scott and Barbara Smith. So, objectivity is itself an example of the reification of white male thought. What could be less objective than the totally white male studies which are considered knowledge? Right, so that's a direct attack on rational epistemology, right? Um, it's also insulting to non-white males because it implies that we have a monopoly on reason. But that's kind of some, some crazy postmodernist epistemology going on there. So she was embracing that a little bit more as far as I can tell. I mean, I'm not an expert on Kimberly Crenshaw. So the way I see it, and maybe someone can and show me that she learned this earlier, but it, it seems like in her first work, she's a little bit more brace, embracing this postmodernism stuff. But by the second... Uh, major work by this by the time she's writing mapping the margins in 1991 a few years later she seems to kind of understand that there are some dangers to postmodernism's anti-essentialism here and it threatens critical race theory and it's kind of obvious why why it would threaten critical race theory right i mean if you can wake up tomorrow and declare yourself to be a woman or a man or a dragonkin or any made up gender right if that's just there's no boundaries there and everyone's got to agree with you because that's that's the rule. Um, why can't you just wake up and declare yourself black? Right? So that that's a threat. And Kimberly Crenshaw sees that that's a threat. Um, and she sees that that would obviously undermine critical race theory. So what she does, I mean, she's not a dumb lady. Uh, she does a good job of integrating these two things. Um, and she she does this using the argument that I just gave above, this idea that Categories exist, but they have meaning. Even though they're socially constructed, they have meaning. So let me read from, and she does this when she writes Mapping the Margins. She kind of combines these two, and she says, um, let's see. One rendition of this anti-essentialist critique that feminism essentializes the category woman owes a great deal to the postmodernist idea that categories we consider natural or merely representational are actually socially constructed in a linguistic economy of difference. So this is where she's saying, hey, postmodernism has some value here. But here's where she's going to introduce, she sees a problem. While the descriptive project of postmodernism of questioning the ways in which meaning is socially constructed is generally sound, she likes it, this critique sometimes misreads the meaning of social construction and distorts its political relevance. Now remember, uh, for a lot of these people, if, if we think about them often as critical theorists, and we'll talk about why you can think of postmodernism, uh, postmodernists in a similar way here, 
their their primary um, their primary direction, their their compass is really a political compass. They have a political agenda. So she's kind of annoyed at how what she's calling the misreading of postmodernist uh, social construction distorts the political relevance. And so she goes on to say, but to say that a category such as race or gender is socially constructed is not to say that the category has no significance in our world. On the contrary, a large and continuing project for subordinated people, and indeed one of the projects for which postmodernism theory, postmodern theories have been very helpful, is thinking about the way power has clustered around certain categories and is exercised against others. And later she says, it is then a project that presumes that categories have meaning and consequences. So this is uh, Kimberly Crenshaw rushing in to save critical race theory from the, the kind of logical consequences of this completely boundaryless postmodern view of uh, concepts like gender and race and, and the, the, the kind of balls to the walls <laughs> postmodernist deconstruction. She's got to rush in and say, yeah, it's socially constructed, but it still matters. It still matters just because it's not socially constructed, just because it's socially constructed, just because it's not essential doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Um, now, she's not the only one to mix the postmodernism with critical theory here. She's the kind of first one that I noticed doing it. But again, um, this isn't my area of expertise. I have, I've read her a little bit, though. There are people like Judith Butler, for example, who consider themselves critical theorists. I think that's like officially she's a critical theorist. Um, and they, she kind of does the opposite. She uses critical theory to attack gender and sexual norms. Um, but she also uses the language of postmodernism to construct her theories, kind of like obliterating boundaries there. So she kind of, if you, I, people have quoted Judith Butler before, because she's this excellent example of like, she spins these elaborate self-contradictory webs of, of language, um, which is one of the reasons she makes herself completely incomprehensible here. It's, it's lots of delicious postmodernism. Um, but she kind of is doing the opposite of Kimberly Crenshaw in one sense here, which is that she uses critical theory to uh, accuse the gender norms of being socially constructed, but then she goes full-on uh, postmodernist to, like, completely break down those barriers, usually, um, rather than saying, yeah, but they have meaning, right? Whereas Crenshaw said, yeah, they have meaning. So, um, I, in, you know, in general, I think uh, you could probably try and apply Crenshaw's arguments to gender, but they mostly won't. They might do it if it's there's some feminist reason to do it, but it looks like that's not really even happening anymore. If there are feminists doing that, they're probably called TERFs. Um, but there's nothing really that would stop Crenshaw's arguments from applying to uh, to gender. So and in general, uh, both, po both postmodernism and critical theory, they're both kind of horrible philosophies. As I said at the outset, like when you've got a philosophy that's going to reject uh, rational epistemology, you can kind of throw it away. Um, but they're not the same horrible philosophy. They're two different horrible philosophies. And so, and there's a bit, a bit of conflict here in them, right? Um, and that conflict is kind of arbitrarily rectified based on political agendas. Crenshaw rectifies it one way, the gender theorists rectify it a different way. Um, so kind of both of those contradictory things exist in one kind of church of woke here. 
Um, so the question here is, you know, they're both bad philosophies. What ties the two bad philosophies together? Well, uh, you might say a third bad philosophy, and, and you wouldn't be wrong. Uh, as I mentioned, critical theory itself is literally founded on the works of Marx and Freud. Um, and it's, it's an explicitly activist, Marxist uh, philosophic system. That's what it's for. Postmodernists actually are basically almost all influential postmodernists, not all of them, but almost all influential postmodernists are explicit Marxists as well. They use the tools of postmodernism to attack the system they don't like, uh, crossing their fingers and hoping that Marxism is what replaces it. Uh, a good person to listen to about this is Dr. Mike, Michael Rechtenwald, who's been on uh, our channel a couple times. I've interviewed him a couple times. I think Kerry might have interviewed him once. Uh, I know Ian Kay interviewed him for The Great Reset. Uh, Dr. Rechtenwald was a postmodernist professor for decades, decades, and a Marxist for decades. Uh, and he can talk extensively about how Marxism is kind of the um, de facto belief system underlying all of the postmodernists. And he would say that the postmodernists uh, don't really intend for postmodernism to be taken seriously. And if something was going to be taken seriously, they want it to be Marxism. I think, I don't think I'm misrepresenting what he would say there. So, so Marx does tie these two philosophies together. And it might seem convenient to just say, hey, they're a bunch of Marxists, which, you know, isn't a bad first order approximation, uh, but it doesn't quite explain the rogue religion um, for the simple fact that not all of these cult members, not all of the members of this woke religion are Marxist. Maybe many at the top are, right? Many of those postmodernist philosophers are, or many of the, you know, the critical theorists are, but not most of the congregation of the church of woke. They're not Marxist. In fact, like a lot of them might not even know how to describe their political philosophy. They might think they're, you know, regular old mixed economy Democrats or whatever. They don't, they're not thinking about themselves in terms of Marxism. So it's a little bit disingenuous to just say, ah, hey, you're all Marxists. Um, so what are they? I mean, one thing that makes the woke religion different from other religions, and this is kind of essential, to, I think, in toward, to understanding what the woke religion is. One thing that makes it different from other religions there's a couple things that make it different, but one thing that makes it different is um, what we'll say, I'll call the direction of the beliefs, right? So if you want to figure out the one unifying theme behind the woke religion, you need to turn the problem upside down compared to what you would do with other religions. And once you do that, the answer becomes, I think it becomes painfully obvious. It's not a question of what the wokies believe is good in the world. That's kind of how you think about religion often, right? Like, well, they believe in this deity and these, this is the things that they, this is their view of the world, right? Hindus believe the earth is, I don't know what, on a bunch of elephants on a turtle's back or whatever. There's like some positive view of the world and what it's like. Um, that's not the question to ask in terms of uh, the woke religion. The question's not what kind of utopia are they trying to build? Because uh, you can't answer that. In fact, I would argue probably most of them can't answer that. Even at the high intellectual levels, they probably would disagree if you asked them to answer that. Um, they don't really know what the utopia they're going for is. But they do know exactly what they want to destroy. 
that's very clear. They want to destroy Western civilization. They may not all use those exact words, but they all want to destroy Western civilization. And all you have to do to see this is to observe their behavior, right? Being woke is simply the hatred of anything that is perceived to represent Western civilization. It doesn't have to actually represent Western civilization. It needs to be perceived to represent Western civilization. So this can be individualism, which I would argue does represent Western civilization. But it could be white men, which don't really represent Western civilization. It could be Christianity. It could be punctuality. It could be math. It could be Gina Carano. If she's perceived as representing Western civilization, she's got to go, right? In the woke cult, everything in our society is problematic because the whole damn society has to go because it's the society that needs to be torn down. It's kind of fundamentally in that way, it's kind of fundamentally a nihilistic belief system in some way, right? Because it's really focused on destruction. And I know that's hard for a lot of people to to wrap their heads around because it seems like this grotesque evil that couldn't possibly exist, but it does. And that's really the only unifying belief that you can tie all of the different Wokies together, right? When the mob comes after someone, it's on Twitter or in real life or on Instagram, it's because whatever they're attacking is perceived to represent some sin of Western civilization. Uh, and obviously to someone who values reason and evidence and truth and individual rights, you know, woke is, is literally a nightmare. Okay. So that's kind of an overview of how I think about what wokeism is. It's this fundamental hatred of, of things perceived to represent Western civilization. Now the question is, how did this kind of malevolent uh, nihilism metastasize into Silicon Valley? Um, and this is going to be kind of a truncated version of all of my thoughts on this because uh, I could talk for hours probably and be a little bit too rambling because um, I haven't thought this completely through. So I'm not going to talk about the psychological dysfunction that's prevalent. I mean, we've talked about uh, and 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 we read the coddling of the American mind by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. They talk explicitly about some of the psychological dis- psychological dysfunction um, that is pervasive in society today. That does play a role. I absolutely believe that plays a role. Um, we've talked to Josh, Josh Slocum and others about this increased prevalence of Cluster B uh, personality traits uh, in society. I think that definitely plays a role as well, probably a very big role. Uh, but I don't want to go that down that rabbit hole right now. We'll put that aside. Uh, I think those things do matter a lot, but it's outside the scope of this. What I'm going to talk about is the non-dysfunctional, kind of common psychological traits and uh, that are, I guess, kind of shared throughout society kind of normally over time um, and how those relate. So this is kind of the non-dysfunctional traits and why that would work or why, why that would set Silicon Valley up to be vulnerable to this. Um, now, the, the previous slide I just had up was a Stranger Things slide, if you didn't recognize it. And, you know, when I see that show, I I sometimes have to stop and ask myself, because I grew up in the 80s, and I, I ask myself when I look, say, how is it that 30 or 40 years later, these kids... Uh, the nerdy kids from AV Club playing Dungeons and Dragons, right? These 
these kids from the 80s grew up to be zealots for this monstrous ideology. Like, how, how did that happen? How did that happen? And I think, I think personally, part of the answer lies in at least two uh, psychological experiments that kind of reveal some truths about humankind generally. And, and one of them is Stanley Milgram's experiments uh, about obedience to authority. And the other one is the Ash Conformity experiments uh, measuring the impact of the social pressure people. So I'm going to talk about each of those in turn and then why uh, and how they affect, you know, Silicon Valley, uh, I guess how they are manifest in Silicon Valley and how that pertains to woke religions. So let's do the Milgram experiment first. In the 1960s, the early 1960s, Stanley Milgram uh, began conducting shock experiments. Now, uh, the goal here, they weren't real shock experiments. The goal here was to determine to what extent people would blindly obey an alleged authority figure, uh, even when it meant hurting or potentially killing an innocent human being. And so he set up, there were variations of this, a few different variations, but basically he set up this uh, ruse whereby the participant uh, thought he was participating in the experiment with another participant who was answering questions. And he was supposed to be delivering shocks to this other participant based on whether the answers were correct or incorrect. And there was an authority figure kind of standing there saying, yes, go ahead and deliver the shocks. Or, or just standing there completely until addressed, just kind of watching. And however, uh, really the, the person getting the, quote, shocks was an actor. There weren't any real shocks, but the participant didn't know that. And so, um, you know, without going into any kind of further detail, what he noticed from this, I mean, the conclusions were kind of, lack of a better word, they were shocking and way out of bounds from the prediction at the time. I mean, they were going to do this experiment and they had predictions about a very low percentage of people that would shock other human beings in any significant way. Um, however, they found that people were very happy to shock other human beings. Um, when someone claiming authority as an experimenter instructed the participant to deliver increasingly severe shocks to the the guy giving the, quote, wrong answers in the other room, um, there was a, I guess I should explain the setup, there was a, a dial, and it had different levels that were labeled, like, you know, this many volts, that many volts, and, and the different labels near each one and the the top the top sections were labeled danger severe shock and then after that it was labeled xxx which presumably just means like death or something i mean right that's the symbol for poison right so they were kind of thinking very few people are going to deliver the danger severe shock thing i mean who would do that um but what they found was that every single participant was willing to deliver shocks at the level that was marked danger, severe shock on the dial. All of them, before they kind of opted out and said, I'm not going any further. All of them got to that level, all of them. Almost as bad, maybe worse, a full 65% of the people, 65% of these participants turned the dial all the way through the final level, the XXX the presumably fatal level, and press the button to deliver the fatal shock. 
65%. It's, it's depressing when you think about it, but that's what they found. Um, and, you know, it turns out the authority figure, it didn't take a lot to be an authority figure, you know, lab code and some business cards or whatever, like, oh, I'm a researcher. But it wasn't like, these authority figures weren't like, you know, a guy with a gun pointing at you saying you have to shock the guy. It was just a dude in a lab coat claiming to be from, you know, a university and doing an experiment. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't intimidating authority in the sense of physical intimidation. It was just an authority figure. Um, and this comports with what we've seen historically from how soldiers behave under totalitarian regimes. There's a book that we read in book club called Ordinary Men. Um, And it's kind of this powerful real world account of how normally benevolent, benevolent human beings uh, will do some of the most grotesque uh, things and some of the most evil acts imaginable. And this was written by Christopher Browning in 1992, and it documents how uh, the Reserve Police Battalion, I think it's Reserve Police Battalion 101, um, from Germany, they were, they were, this is during World War II, um, they were stationed in Poland. Now, these were the reserve officers, so these were not full-time soldiers. These were like, you know, your local dentist and the shop owner down the street, like ordinarily, you know, ordinary family men kind of people, right? Um and they were shipped off to Poland to, um, to I don't want to say fight in the war because I don't know they were fighting, but to behave in a way uh, in the war. They were shipped off to Poland. They were activated. And this book documents how they reacted when the Nazi commanders ordered them to exterminate other human beings. And again, a frighteningly large number of them just complied. In fact... One of the things that was interesting about that book and scary was that the soldiers actually preferred not to have a choice. Uh, There was a time in which the officer, the the commanding officer said, well, if you don't want to be the one to go kill the person in the woods, you can opt out. And everyone felt very uncomfortable. A couple people opted out, but most of them didn't. The ones that didn't, didn't feel comfortable about it. No one liked it. They all wanted to just be told they had to go do it. And they were surprisingly compliant with this. Um... And the title here of this book is important because it emphasizes that in both Milgram's experiment and in World War II Poland, um, we're talking about ordinary people. These are people like you and me. These are not different from us um, in a major way. I just, at the recommendation of one of our viewers, I also just watched um, a short, I think it was originally an after-school special special called The Wave, about a uh, an experiment in a high school in 1967, in April of 1967. Um, in which a high school teacher basically, uh, to prove a point to his students, basically created kind of like a Hitler youth thing. Um, And it was, again, disturbing how many kids just jumped on. Not They didn't realize what it was, right? So he didn't use the same terminology, but he kind of created something very similar and they all went along with it. And he eventually had to expose it at the end and say, hey, do you want to meet your leader? And he showed them a picture of Adolf and, and was like, here's your leader. And, and this is, you know, explaining that the Germans weren't different than us in the sense that 
they would do these things and we wouldn't. All of us will, apparently. I mean, not all of us, but a large percentage of us will go along with this kind of thing. And that's important to remember. Okay, so that's the, that's the Milgram experiment. So how does that apply to Silicon Valley? I need to talk about what I think is another psychological factor happening here in Silicon Valley, um, specifically with technical people. Now, obviously, a couple of things. Obviously, the philosophies that we've talked about prior are not rational philosophies. Right? I mean, you can't be an engineer, for example, and build a bridge based on lived experience, right? You need math. Uh, in physics, <laughs> like objective reality needs to exist. You can't like all the all the foundations of this radical woke religion are recognizably crap in the engineering world. And obviously, Silicon Valley is filled with technical people. And obviously, those technical people are rational when they're operating in the technical domain. They they have to be right, um, and they can be actually quite confident in that domain. Uh, and they can actually be quite resistant to pressure in that domain. Um, if you've ever tried to argue with an engineer about some nitpicky technical thing that they think is correct, uh, you, I think you'll learn quickly. Like they, can, they can be pretty forceful in pushing back on something that they think is irrational in the technical domain. Um, and, you know, if they weren't, they would fail. So that kind of makes sense. But for a lot of the engineering types, and I can talk about engineers this way because I was an engineer, um, so I'm talking about myself. Uh, for a lot of these engineering types, um, and I would say this often happens in high school or college, um, they peer over at their their friends or colleagues in the humanities departments, especially philosophy and English and ethics and that kind of stuff, and they see what looks like incomprehensible gibberish because you know, they're being taught postmodernism and that kind of crap. So it is it is gibberish, right? It is nonsense. So they look over it and they, they see this nonsense there, right? And they've got their physics class and their math class and they look over and they're like, this, is, this other thing is kind of nonsensical. Um, now, uh, they see it and they're like, that looks like incomprehensible gibberish. Now, they're right. It actually is incomprehensible gibberish. The modern philosophy kind of leaking from university humanities departments is, is in fact gibberish. But... Um, they, they give it the benefit of the doubt. So they take this, you know, this irrational hairball that's been kind of coughed up from the worst ideas that history has to offer. They see that and they say, well, it looks like the emperor has no clothes, but they're, I, it's almost, I almost want to say they're too naive or too trusting or too gullible. They naively and generously grant their counterparts in the humanities the benefit of the doubt. They assume that if something is labeled research uh, and it takes a lot of work to produce and it gets published in a respectable journal with a, you know, lots of requisite jargon around it, uh, they assume that if you get your PhD from a, a reputable university with a hearty approval of the faculty there, uh, that it must be legitimate. They assume that it's rigorous. They assume that it has a null hypothesis and tested. They assume that it, it must have emerged from a critique of the best theories capable of, of explaining observed reality, and this is the one that works best. They, they assume it's going to be rational and true because 
if they were applying reason to humanities, that's what would be, that's what would happen, right? If they were there um, and they understood how to actually go about this and weren't intimidated by the humanities, they would have probably something similar to the scientific method. They would expect null hypotheses. They would try and tear down bad ideas. Um, they would test with observed results. They would do all that stuff themselves. And so they're assuming that this is all just as legitimate as their field of study. Um, so what happens here is they end up leaving the realm of ethics and philosophy generally up to experts that they assume are doing their level best to produce real knowledge, just like the engineers are doing. Um, and then the engineers just, you know, they make that assumption and then they go about their business, mostly ignoring uh, the weirdos who can't code in the humanities building. And, and that, that was the status quo for a while, right? You could ignore postmodernists for quite some time and, and function in reality because they were, you know, mostly just blathering fools in, in uh, university English departments or whatever. They're just muttering to themselves and having conferences that no one outside goes to. So they could ignore them. It was fine. But uh, something happened culturally. And that is that Silicon Valley went from kind of sitting at the dorky nerd table in the cafeteria uh, of American culture to becoming the homecoming queen. Uh, tech and startup culture became not just popular, but kind of ubiquitous and cool, right? Um, it wasn't just like, I, you know, maybe it was with the rise of people like Bill Gates who, who were kind of viewed as super, super nerdy and then got rich. Um, but whatever it was, uh, and probably the dot-com boom helped, right? The nerds started to get, I won't say cool, but popular in some sense. Nerds mattered. And actually, society became much more you know, with the invention of the internet, technology actually became much more important to how humans interacted and communicated with one another in a way that it hadn't in the past. And, you know, technology in the past had really been about gadgets and accomplishing other, you know, building cars and doing other things, but less about communication so much and how we interacted. But with the advent of the internet, technology became important. Entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley kind of became cool or at least powerful and recognized as powerful. So all those indoctrinated humanities uh, disciples, all the, the woke disciples and the postmodernists and critical theorists and every mix uh, in between there, um, they stood up and took notice of this, right? They see where this nexus of power is, is now. Um, and they decided it was started, you know, it was time for them to start LARPing as experts in ethics, even though they have no credibility uh, as ethicists. Uh, really, because they just, you know, they start from horrible premises and sit around and contemplate absurdities all day long. But hey, hey, guys, there's the power over there. We need to start LARPing as ethicists and start telling people what to do. That's the power structure. It's over in Silicon Valley. So they started writing articles and they started writing books. And as Silicon Valley grew, more importantly, they started infiltrating Silicon Valley. Um, they use kind of vaguely moral sounding aphorisms uh, that the engineers were like, I guess, sure, you're, you know, I don't know, you're the expert. Uh, 
And they came in to a lot of companies, usually through the HR department. Even if it wasn't in companies, they were kind of uh, were in the culture generally around these universities. Um, obviously, they're teaching some of these engineers. It became more important to kind of teach these engineers the ethics that they wanted when they were in school. Uh, but yeah, they, they infiltrated mostly through the HR departments in, in, in companies because the HR departments can do the most damage. They set culture, they hire, uh, which is important. <laughs> um, so they can do a lot of damage there. And I'll tell you as an engineer, engineers hate HR. No one gives a crap about HR. No one wants to deal with HR. Uh, you start a company and it's like this painful day when your company gets big enough and someone's like, we need HR. It's like, God oh, damn it. I never wanted to need HR. I hate HR. It's kind of this like ugh, necessary evil. And so, you know, you hire the you hire the uh, disciple of, of Kimberly Crenshaw from Stanford to run your HR and, you know, just don't get me in trouble. Do whatever is right. I don't know what's right. I'm busy coding, right? And that's how, that's how your company gets infected with this. So Silicon Valley became accustomed to moral authority figures whispering in their ears incessantly because these moral authority figures started to come in. And these are figures that they've already granted moral authority to. Remember, they granted moral authority to these figures a while ago um, by virtue of their incomprehensibility, right? Like, oh, I don't understand it, but, you know, they got a PhD, must be legit. They've got the moral authority. Um, and so just like the subjects in Stanley Milgram's experiment, they they just obeyed. Like, okay, well, oh, this is what's right, right? And they they do things like say, oh, well, uh, there's white privilege. For This is just one example. They'll talk about white privilege. White privilege is a thing, right? And the average engineer is like, oh, it is? Oh, I guess it's, uh, I guess it's like a proven thing that's been researched and studied. And I guess, I guess white privilege is a thing. They assume that you went through some kind of process and there's, there's papers on it. It's very, you know, the, uh, the Peggy McIntosh's knapsack paper is very well cited. There, I mean, you know, cite, everyone cites it and, oh, it must, must be, must be legit. Right, so you must be an authority. Now, in fact, that paper is just arbitrary. She just wrote it. There's, there's no, she didn't use any evidence. There's no, there's no uh, studies that were done. There's no, just, she just wrote it. Just, hey, what about maybe this, right? And by the way, Peggy McIntosh, again, this is just an example of one thing, but a, a rich old white lady who was like, gee, I have it pretty easy. I wonder if it's because I'm white and wrote a paper about white privilege. And that was it. That's it. That's, that's it. That's the basis for it. It's, it's like if an engineer was just like, hey, uh, you know, uh, I wonder if I could write a, I mean, you know, I wonder if I could travel faster than the speed of light. I'll write a paper about it. Boom. Like, okay. Okay, done. No one, you know, no experiments, no testing it, no, no hypothesis, nothing. Okay. That becomes doctrine. So the engineers accept these people, these charlatans, as moral authority figures. Uh, and like the ordinary men uh, in the book, the instructions that they're, they're given by these authority figures are kind of monstrous. Uh, not as physically violent, obviously, but monstrous in their own right. Okay. So that's some of the psychology about why this got into Silicon Valley, I think. Feel free to argue or offer even more explanations because I don't think this is a complete explanation, as I've said. Um, 
but you know, that's not enough to kind of usurp cult the culture in Silicon Valley completely. Just the authority figures, I don't think it would be enough. Um, the usurpation of the culture isn't really complete until you've convinced ordinary people not just to obey and succumb to pressure from authority, but to apply the peer pressure themselves to, to their friends and colleagues and family and community members. They need to be actively involved. For this to really become the problem that it is, ordinary people need to not just obey, but propagate this um, to each other. And that's where the Ash conformity uh, experiment becomes relevant, which I, I mentioned was the second experiment I wanted to talk about. Solomon Ash was a Gestalt psychologist, um, pioneer in social psychology. Um, and in 1951, he, he conducted an experiment at Swarthmore College. He had 50 students participate in what he called a vision test. Again, similar to the Milgram experiment, it was not what was described. Something else was going on. So the, the participants didn't know really what was going on. What he did was he had a group, I think it was um, eight people in a group. Um, he had them go into a room together and he had them uh, compare a target line with three other lines. And they have different lengths. And he had the people in the room go around and answer out loud which of the three lines, A, B, or C, is most similar to the target line. Now, the way this was set up, the three lines, the answer was obvious. Like, one of them was literally the same length as the target line, and the other two was, like, obviously long, obviously short. So it's a no-brainer. If, if you look at it, which is on the screen now, if you look at it, you'll see there's no question about the right answer, okay? Um, but what he did was, of the eight people in that room, seven of them were plants. Only one of them was actually the person being experimented on. And the seven plants got to speak first. And they all previously agreed which wrong answer they would give. So you go into the room, and they show you the target line and the three other lines. And people go around, and they're all given the wrong answer. And then it gets to be your turn at the end. Do you use your own judgment and contradict all of your peers? Or do you fall in line and say uh, the answer that you kind of should know to be wrong? It's, it's obvious. Well, of the 12 trials that he ran, 75% of the participants conformed with the wrong answer at least once. So at least once, 75% of them gave the wrong answer. On average, 32% of them went along with the obvious wrong answers. All right? Um, and only 25% of the people never gave a wrong answer. So think about this for a moment. This is a, this is a kind of pure case where there's no question what the right answer is. Think about what those results might look like if there was some sort of confusion about the right answer. If maybe you didn't understand exactly what the postmodernist gobbledygook that Judith Butler was writing meant. Or, you know, the language that was being used. And, you, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Sure. Right? You might actually have a higher conformity uh, rate. But this was high enough. Right? Only 25% always chose the right answer. That's pretty bad. When those participants were interviewed after the experiment, 
most of them said they didn't really believe their conforming answers, but they went along with it anyway because they didn't want to be ridiculed um, or thought peculiar. I guess it's 1951, so peculiar is a word that they care about. They didn't want people to think they were peculiar, so they went along with it. A few of them said they really did believe the group's uh, answers were correct, and those are your gaslighting targets, like get them to believe anything, right? But it's fascinating that most of them were like, yeah, I don't believe it, but it didn't matter. I gave the wrong answer anyway because I didn't want to be the odd man out, basically. So we have the situation now in Silicon Valley uh, where every day the people there, not just engineers, but everyone in, in Silicon Valley, they're being told that the long line is the short one, right? They're being told that up is down, masculinity is toxic, biological sex is a fiction, uh, individualism is racist, right? They're being told all of this nonsense. Whether they believe it or not is kind of irrelevant because they are willing to propagate it because they're afraid. Um, you know, disagreement makes them anxious. They don't want to be ridiculed. They're afraid to agree. And frankly, those are much more difficult questions to answer than the line test. So you've got moral authorities telling them this stuff. They've deferred to the moral authorities because um, they've decided that, you know, humanities are the, the ethics are outside of their realm of expertise. On top of that, you've got this kind of ash conformity, peer pressure going on, propagating these ideas. Um, and so I think that is why the woke religion can easily metastasize in Silicon Valley. I think those are the kind of primary reasons. Like I said, I think there are other reasons as well. Um, but, you know, I think you could argue now that Silicon Valley is the epicenter of modern woke religiosity. I think in authoritarian behavior, certainly the certainly it's the epicenter of censorship, right? Um, and none of this stuff that I've described, one of the reasons I actually didn't want to talk about psychological dysfunction is so that I could show you, actually none of this argument relies on there being a weird psychological dysfunction in anyone. That's icing on the cake. If there's also dysfunction, that might make it worse, and we can talk about that another day. But all this stuff is just kind of well-documented human behavior, peer pressure kind of stuff. That's that's how I think we get to where we are, um, which I guess is scary, and I don't want to end on a, a bad note or a, a sad note, but I'm a realist. That's, that's how I think we got where we are. So hopefully this will... Um, this video will help you understand at least how I think about the woke religion. You might think about it slightly differently, uh, but... Um, and maybe someday we'll integrate the psychological dysfunction part into uh, another video or maybe expand on some of the philosophy stuff a little bit. I, you know, all that was kind of glossed over at a pretty high level. Um, so let me know in the comments if you'd like me to dive more deeply into anything here. Thank you for watching. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And uh, look, Western civilization is worth fighting for. Don't let these religious zealots take it from you. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. 
you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms. Well, mostly. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to it. The following co-conspirators will report to the Enrichment Center immediately to receive a surprise. I am disappointed that you are still watching. I have made a note of this failure in your record. Experts agree that critical race theory is not a deadly neurotoxin. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific and scientifically are registered trademarks at the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake. <laughs>